12, 13, and 14. Joel chapter 2, 12 through 14. Those verses read, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering, unto the Lord your God. It is the saddest and most grievous thing in the world, I do believe, to acknowledge the perishing of sinners. To think about it, to know that it's happening, to know that one day there will be a great and final judgment and execution of that judgment will be pronounced on sinners and they will perish. It comes in degrees, but it's one thing to grieve over a sinner who will die in their sins, who is living in sin, enjoying sin, and is somewhat reprobate of God, perhaps even have their conscience seared, all aware of it, acknowledging it, and going headstrong their own way down the broad road to destruction even though they've been warned. That's so sad and so grievous. And it should be to every child of God because we were once there and know that end now and that God's grace has plucked us from that. But there's something even more grievous than that and that's what we're going to address today, Lord willing, from this text. And that is sinners who are deceived and think everything is all right with their soul and will find out too little too late that all things were not well with their soul. <coughs> to be deceived about salvation. And by that I'm pointedly referring to exactly what the Lord talked about as He concluded the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 when He made this statement right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. So just because you acknowledge or are religious or make a claim to Jesus as Lord, that doesn't settle it. Jesus said that in that day many will be, and I'm paraphrasing, disappointed and surprised when they say, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out devils and done many wonderful works? And the Lord will look at them and say, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. That, I believe, is the most grievous thing that we could just about think of. Is someone who has been deceived about their soul. And this is why we hate as the psalmist every false way and every false teaching 
about salvation and how to be saved and what does save and what it takes to be saved and where salvation comes from and how to know if you have it or do not. Because heresies, false religions, and false prophets have so muddied the waters that most will be deceived who think everything is okay. This is where false denominations come from. They promote a false way of salvation. People believe what somebody said other than what the Lord said. And if you're dependent on anything other than what Jesus said about salvation, I urge you, drop it and consult what Christ said and what this book says about salvation, lest you be deceived. The gospel has been cheapened. The gospel has been made soft. It has deceived people even to the point that they're told today all you got to do is some simple little prayer, just some simple this. You don't have to change anything. You don't have to do anything. And as we addressed last week, you don't have to make Him Lord of your life, just your Savior, and everything will be just fine. That's the blind leading the blind. And our text refers to that today, I do believe, when it says in verse 13, rend your heart, and not your garments. And that's the title of our message today. Salvation is about a heart rending, not an outward rending. And by that we're talking about a distinction between religion that is outward, religion that is based on inward, faith that is inward, not on what you do outward. Salvation is inward. It works its way outward. It has not and never will start outward and work its way inward. God's way is start within and it'll work itself without. Man's way is start without and it'll work itself in. Just the opposite. So people, many people do all kinds of things outwardly, which would be referenced here to rending the garment. Something you do, something that can be seen, etc., etc., and let that which is most important, the invisible internal, go. And this will make up those who will say, Lord, Lord, have we not done so many things, rending the garments, but have never rended the heart? Joel's message here, ironically, is the gospel. The verses I've read to you this morning are the gospel. In fact, it might be, uh, I wonder how many would recognize it as the gospel if I had not announced I was reading from the book of Joel. You know, turn unto the Lord. Rend your heart. The Lord is gracious, merciful, etc., etc. I mean, that is the gospel. So don't be guilty of thinking the gospel's in the New Testament. A lot of people that are not taught properly think the gospel's just the New Testament teaching. Oh no, it's the most ancient teaching there is. It begins in Genesis and concludes in Revelation 22. So this is the gospel in a nutshell. And we didn't take the time to read chapter 1 nor what pre uh, what comes before chapter in here in chapter 2 in the previous verses. But I'll tell you what it is about, and it is a warning of judgment. A very severe judgment in the previous verses, first 11 verses in chapter 2 here. Severe 
judgment referred to as the day of the Lord or the day of the Lord's judgment. And Joel's prophecy is very broad in its scope. Joel was a pre-Babylonian captivity prophet. So literally here, in the literal sense to those that heard him in that day, he was prophesying of the judgment of God upon Israel and their sin, and he would use the Babylonians to do that and take them into the 70-year captivity. So there was a literal application that you can see in this, and it's not just here in chapter 2, it's other chapters also. And yet it goes on and extends itself, if you look at these verses very carefully, not just to the Babylonian judgment, but also to the judgment that would come at the hands of the Romans when God's people rejected Christ. And then it looks even further with some of the language and talks about the judgment that would come upon the nation at the hands of the Antichrist. And ultimately, in the end, the day of the Lord upon the whole world. Okay? So, this prophecy of Joel must be looked at in that manner if you're going to totally comprehend it. But summed up, there is the warning of judgment due to sin here upon God's people. Not just then, but the extended time also. And then we are given in our text the condition and the only remedy and hope that there is to be delivered from that judgment and it is the words I read to you this morning rend your heart and not your garments okay that's the only way to escape so as we often say to you when you read the word turn in the Bible addressed to sin or sinners it's synonymous with the word repent Because repenting is turning and turning is repenting. And this is what they are urged to do here by the prophet Joel. Exactly what John the Baptist preached. Exactly what Christ preached. And exactly what the apostles preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospels. The Bible says in the book of Acts the apostles went everywhere preaching that men should repent. So turn, repent, synonymous, Old Testament, New Testament, same gospel, same conditions in that regard. Now, the natural inclination of sinners is to do things of themselves, religiously, piously, or in some way to deliver themselves. Works by salvation is a seed that lies in every sinner. Well, I'll do this. Well, if it's real, I can do this or I can do that. And then we have the devil and all the false prophets and all of his ministers and everybody else that there ever has been very quick to solicit to the minds of sinners, yeah, if you'll do this and you'll do that and you'll do it so many times and you'll keep doing that and then you'll add this to it, then hey, everything will be all right. You won't have to worry about a thing when you die, okay? Cedric said, there's so much of that stuff out there, it's so sad. And all it really is is works-based salvation because it's rending the garment outwardly and not attending to the things inwardly. And if you're a student of the Bible, you know in the Gospels, in the four Gospels, this is what Jesus' ministry 
was most heated about was with the religionists of that day who were constantly, and I'm using this phrase, rending the garment outwardly, but were neglecting that which was inward. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, right? All kinds of things were being done outwardly. And Jesus condemned every bit of it. And he literally told them in various ways, yeah, you washed the plate on the outside, you know, but it's still dirty on the inside. You're nothing but a whited sepulcher, all pretty on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. That, that's exactly what Joel is saying here. And that's exactly what the Lord said. That outward works will not save. But people are so eager to embrace and believe a system of religion or a teaching or doctrine of salvation that they can participate in and do something and get the credit for doing it and feel good about themselves. That again is sadly the curse of sin. When the Bible teaches you can't. Nothing you do outwardly. All the religion in the world. All the rites. All the ceremonies. All the doing. Will not save your soul. It starts within. Very distinctly. Everything that is done outwardly, religiously, piously, whatever they may be, is superficial. It is temporary. It is a reform it is not a transformation. That's why it is measure, that is why it can be summed up as a miserable failure. When you have had a supernatural work of grace done within your heart, when you have literally been turned by the grace of God from sin unto Christ, it's totally different comes to my mind a good friend of mine I don't even know if he's still alive but I hadn't thought of him in a while many years ago and I've used him many times in sermons as an example because it is a great example he was a terrible sinner and he knew he was a sinner in fact he was a sot just a pickled alcoholic he could hold down a job, and he was a good friend of mine. And he came to saving grace in Christ. But his, he told me something, and I've never forgot it. His family was very religious. They were involved in a denomination of works for salvation. Always doing, and had to keep doing, and keep doing. Because if you didn't keep doing, you could lose it. You had to get it back. You have to do something else to get it back. And, you, and he said... I can still see him. I can still see him this day telling me this. He'd sit with big old crocodile tears run down his eyes and he'd tell me, he'd say, Arthur, he said, I knew what I was. But he said, I knew I didn't need what they had. He said, I, I just a drunken sot. But I could see the religion that they had. They were more miserable than I was. Because it was all external. They were rending the garment with doing this, with doing that, with that and that. And even somebody lost and dead in trespasses and sin could see the vanity of that. And that man appreciated grace when he came to grace. Because he saw, first of all, not what could save, but what couldn't save. 
And he said, they were miserable. And again, if you don't have hope in Christ, then whatever religion you got, whatever faith you got, you're going to be of all persons most miserable. Because the salvation that God gives doesn't give you misery. It takes it away. It gives you real hope. It gives you something to live by and it gives you something to die by. It removes fear. It's not a spirit of fear. It removes the spirit of fear. While you're alive and when it comes time to die. Rending the garment, don't do that. So the text tells us the focus should be on the heart. On the heart. And we stress the heart. You know why we stress the heart here? Why I stress the heart in my preaching? The Bible stresses the heart. If I remember correctly, I may be wrong. When I was studying for this, again brought up the heart. I think the heart is in the Bible 765 times. That's a subject that needs to be looked into, wouldn't you think? Old and New Testament. The heart is addressed in so many ways. The heart is diagnosed. The heart is judged. And the remedy for the heart disease is in the Bible. So no wonder here that Joel says here in our text that turn unto me with all your heart. Rend your heart. Okay? It's addressing the matter where it needs to be addressed. Because if the heart is not changed, there is no such thing as salvation. You can change anything and everything, but if the heart has not been changed, you're deceived about your own soul. Salvation is a heart change, according to the Bible. Numerous things are said about the Bible. Too much for me to cover it all today, but focusing on what is said here, turning and rending, the Bible refers to the heart, as we see here in other places, about you turn with all of your heart. And remember, what is turning? Repenting. All right? With the heart. You rend the heart. The Bible refers to the circumcision of the heart. The Bible talks about believing with the heart. And the Bible tells us we've got the wrong heart. We have a stony heart. And we need a fleshly heart. Now I'm not going to go and read all the scriptures about all that, but I am going to point you to two or three. As far as believing with the heart, I think we covered that just a week or two ago in Romans 10.10 is where we read that, that with the heart man believeth unto salvation. The Bible is not a novel and it doesn't mean that you read it and you remember it intellectually and you are saved. No, the Bible is a book that diagnoses you and is intended to bring you prostrate on your knees before the Lord of glory, repenting of your sins. That's rending of the heart. But with the heart you believe. So we distinguish between a head belief and a heart belief. A head belief reforms, a heart belief transforms. 
One is the grace of God, one is the works of men. In Ezekiel chapter 11 and chapter 36 is where we read about the stony heart and how that God said that stony heart must be replaced with a fleshly heart. And we refer to that very often because who could give a better illustration of the condition of the sinner and of what God does in the salvation of a sinner? It's a sad thing, isn't it, to have to tell people you have a stony heart. You're dead in trespasses and sins. But we're quick to add, guess what? So was I. And let me tell you what God did about that. Not what I did. I didn't rend the garment. I didn't rend the heart. I tried to rend the garment, but God rended the heart. And the Bible says God takes away the stony heart and puts in a heart of flesh. Again, best illustration I know of about the sinner's condition. I've never seen stone do anything of you in and of itself. It's dead, it's cold, it's hard, it's lifeless. That's a stone. That's the human heart. But God says you need something that's sensitive, that's alive. And he compares it to a fleshly heart. And I find this absolutely amazing. I'll throw this in here now, thinking about this. We are blessed to live in the generation where heart transplant was discovered. I'm not going to say perfected. But now is done like taking people's tonsils out almost. What a blessing. Who would have ever thought that possible? There are so many things we're blessed with in this generation that well, Brenda and I were talking this week, or again I was preaching to her, that our grandma and grandpas would have never imagined. Just, just two generations back. Never imagined. I didn't imagine it when I was a kid, and here it is. But the thing that gets me in this is, before people ever thought or imagined a heart transplant possible, it was already in the Bible. Already in the Bible. And what's in the Bible is of greater significance than what surgeons are doing today. In Ezekiel, I mean, it's an amazing thing. God says, I will transplant the sinner's heart. And again, I don't know, I didn't bother to look it up, I didn't really care, but somebody somewhere would be the first surgeon that's got his name out there, the first person to successfully transplant a human heart. Somebody's got that by their name. But before they did it, God had been doing it spiritually for generations. And if God don't do it, it can't be done. God will take that stony heart out. And put a heart of flesh in there. So, turn, rend, circumcise, believe. Remove a stony heart, have a fleshly heart. That's salvation. That is internal. That is serious. we got a lot of organs in our body, but I don't think anybody would say any organ in your body is more important than your heart. In fact, the Bible says that. It said that before modern or any medicine discovered that. You know how that, that is? The life is in the blood. God said that way back. Probably before the worry of doctors. Right? And the heart is the pump for the blood. So again, 
very important, very internal, no deeper than what we're talking about here. Now, the Bible says, as I've said, turning is repentance. And here I stress to you, verse 12 says, turn ye even to me with all your heart. And that's very important because a partial turning doesn't count because there's no partial salvation. You're either saved or you're lost. You're in or you're out. Your sins have been forgiven or they haven't. There's no part way, no medium way, no almost way. That's it. Your sins are covered or they're not. So turning doesn't mean reform. Turning doesn't mean committing for a while and then being back in a state of non-committal. I like to refer to it kind of according to geometry. Because the Bible mathematically is geometry when it says that you turn from sin and turn to God. That's 180 degrees. That's going from 12 to 6. Anything short of that, you'll go to hell. That's it. That's like grace and works. You get just one little pinch of works in whatever you're trusting in for salvation, and you just annihilated grace. It's all a grace, or it's none of grace. It's all a works, it's none of works. So repenting is a full-fledged, lifetime commitment. You turn from sin, you turn to God, and you don't turn back. Like the hand of the plow. No going back. You're committed. That's what it is. And I could give you all kinds of scripture. In fact, I gave you a lot of them last week on that very subject, I suppose. What is meant by rend or rent to rent? This is our real focus, so let's get into it. We read that word rend or more commonly rent, which is a past tense of somebody renting a garment. And it refers to tearing. We read it Old Testament, New Testament. It's a lot throughout the Bible. We read of godly people doing this, rending the garment. We read of ungodly people rending the garment. I mean, all kinds of people in Scripture. Jacob, Jacob's sons, Joshua rent their garments. Saul rent his garment. He was lost. David rent his garment. He was the apple of God's eye. Uh, Elisha the prophet ran his mantle. Ahab the old wicked king ran his garment. All right? Job ran his garment. The high priest at the mock trial of Christ ran his garment. The apostles rent their garment on occasion. So you see all kinds throughout godly, ungodly people, different circumstances, different times doing the same thing. But what is common with rending the garment in that sense. And this is a point I want to make, pay attention to. When people did that, whether it was a godly person that believed in God or somebody like Ahab or Saul, all of them were always doing it on some occasion of some tragedy or something tragic. Or maybe I should even say a crisis. 
a huge crisis that was very personal to them. They weren't rending their garment because somebody else was suffering. It was something that directly affected them to the very core of their being. It shook their foundation in one way or another. Tragic. And therefore they would, an outward show, bring sorrow, grief, and they would rend their garment and then maybe even do other things like Job, sat in the dirt, put ashes on your head, Job shaved his head, various other things. But the rending of the garment is always associated with a tragedy or crisis of either bad news or bad circumstances. And it affects something that is very, very important to that person. And it brings grief and it brings extreme sorrow. Perhaps life, death issue. But it is a calamity of great proportions. Okay? So that's what I want you to think of when we read here, rend your heart. Always associated. And if you were to take the time and, or just think in your mind of those you know of who did this. Let's just, just take Job. Job's an outstanding example. Literally people who do this because of the news, the circumstances, or whatever it is, are literally, as much as humanly possible, overcome and overwhelmed by whatever it is to this great and terrible grief and sorrow. And I'm just going to say just as much as a human can bear. Alright? It's of that degree. And these people are helpless and they are hopeless because of the reality and present danger of whatever it is. So they rend their garment in their overwhelming grief and sorrow. And that's why we read here also that turn with me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning... Rending a garment many times was always accompanied with many of those very same things. David did this when the child was sick for a week. Remember that? Fasting, mourning, sorrowing, and, and all of that. Uh, rending the garment and so forth. Job, Job's friends, this is what you see. But I'm stressing to you the severity because if you don't get the severity of it, then you miss the message here of what it means to rend the heart. So again, think of it in this term. So overwhelmed, overcome, left helpless, and left hopeless by whatever it was. That's what it means when they rent their garment in that sense. Well, that's exactly the application we must make here within the context of Scripture, to the heart. That the heart, that your innermost being, who you are inside, is so overwhelmed and overcome with your guilt and reality of sin that it leaves you helpless and hopeless. That's what rending the heart means. That's what repentance is. 
we almost could say it's a turning of wrong side out that's of supernatural proportions. And I'm not saying you have to describe your conversion of that, but I'm telling you there was a turning of upside down or you're not converted. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Peace, people are not passively saved by grace. Your apple cart gets turned upside down. It's the most extraordinary change that will ever happen in your life. For that compass that's always pointed north towards sin to take a reversal and turn all the way the opposite way, God has to do that. And it doesn't go unnoticed. The degree, the circumstances, all may vary. Not everybody, quote unquote, was saved with a Damascus Road experience, but all were saved by the same Lord and the same grace and the same conviction of sin. So when he says, rend your hearts here, he's saying, you need to get a grip on just who you are, what you have done, how guilty you are. This is what he's saying to God's people. Your sin is why judgment is coming. And it's going to be very, very real. And don't pretend like it's not going to. You need to think about what's coming. And again, was this not the message of John Christ and the apostles? What John the Baptist say? Who's warning you to flee from the wrath to come? Jesus talked about the wrath to come. The apostles preached the wrath to come. Right? A gospel without a warning of the wrath to come is not much of a gospel. What do you need to be saved from? Punishment of your sins. So what he's saying here is you should have such conviction of sin and guilt and sorrow and mourning that you're torn inside. And the common phrase we hear in quote-unquote relationships and everything else, and that's an A to Z, cover everything, whatever, is a broken heart. You've never had your heart broke unless you've had it broke by God. These heartbreaks we suffer of one another are nothing compared to being broken over sin. And rending the heart is exactly, exactly that. The Bible doesn't have anything good to say about the heart. It's deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Out of it, it's like a a fountain of abominable putrefaction that God hates and harms everybody else. The Lord said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, a stony heart, a deceitful heart, an evil heart, a proud heart, an unclean heart. And there is no hope of reform for it. You just need to throw that away and get another one. That's how dramatic, how radical it is. God doesn't patch up sinners. He saves sinners. And we deny any type of doctrine that teaches a reformation for salvation. Salvation is not reforming. It's being transformed by the grace of God and that's the only thing that can transform a sinner. Period. And again, it goes back to that heart transplant of Ezekiel 11 and verse 36. Let me give you another example. I do want to mention one scripture on the circumcision of the heart. And Paul talked about that in Romans. And I do want to point that to you because I think it's informative to our discussion here. Romans chapter 2, verse 25, he says, For circumcision verily profiteth 
if thou keep the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. And that's talking about the fleshly circumcision of the children of Israel, the seed of Abraham. Verse 29 says, He that is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. So Paul is making the distinction again about the circumcision that the Jews stressed so much that was outwardly and fleshly and the one which was inwardly and spiritual. And so he says it there. Inwardly and in the heart. And so again, a rending or a circumcision is a tearing away, a cutting away. Damage done in that respect. So this is serious in that matter. That's why it's referred to in that matter to show the internal importance of what is done in the heart. Well, what does a rending of the heart look like? Biblically. If you've been saved and you're converted and you know you're a child of God, then you had your heart rent. Sovereign grace rent your heart. The gospel convicted you and broke you and brought you to a place where you cried out unto God. Let me give you two examples of what a rent heart looks like. Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. Acts 2 and verse 37. Day of Pentecost, Peter preaching. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And said unto Peter and the rest, the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That is a rent heart. That's exactly what a rent heart is. Peter preached the gospel unto them, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, it impaled their heart. It brought guilt, it brought shame, it brought a burden. It brought a fear of judgment for not only what they had done to Christ, those that participated in that, but the sins that each one had were felt. And they were pricked in their heart. That's what it is. That's what it is. They were, as we defined rent, overwhelmed and overcome by their personal conviction of sin. And what did they do? What shall we do? Pretty poignant. Let's look at another one in Acts chapter 16. You'll recognize this one equally so. 16th chapter, verse 30. The Philippian jailer. Verse 29, he called for a light, sprang in, came trembling, fell down before Paul and Silas, brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Where does that statement come from? A heart that's been rent by the grace of God. That's where it comes from. He was overcome, overwhelmed. If you've studied this, and you've looked at this, and you've heard me even preach on this, if there was ever a man that was overcome and overwhelmed, this guy was it. I mean, he was ready to commit suicide for more than one reason, not just because the prisoners escaped. 
remember again you say well I don't know about that how how's all this happen this guy was chained up to Paul and Silas two of the greatest missionaries and preachers that ever lived and you know what they've been doing they weren't sitting in there licking their wounds moaning and groaning in the Philippian jail you know what they were doing they were singing praises unto God the gospel was being declared in song and unfortunately, humanly for him, but fortunately for him spiritually, guess what? He was chained up to the preacher and couldn't get away. <laughs> I mean, doesn't, doesn't God work strange circumstances in saving people? I'll tell you what I wish. I wish I could change some people in the church house sometime, just keep them still for a little while and preach. The, you know what I'm saying? Well, they had that nice accommodation. He had to keep them. So he had to sit there and listen to them worshiping and praising the God of salvation. And the Holy Spirit and God's providence took that and rent his heart. And he said, what must I do to be saved? If you've been saved in some way, shape, or form, you've come to that same place. We've all been there. If we're saved, because that's where grace brings us. It tells us you can't do nothing but cry out for mercy. It don't matter what or how many religious, pious rending of the garments you do. It don't matter how many vows you make and leave off this sin or that sin and think you are. It don't matter. You're still unclean. It's when you come to the point and realize all your rending amounts to nothing then the heart can be rendered and should be. Well, the glory of all this is, the text says, rend your heart, not your garments. Turn to the Lord your God. In other words, repent and believe the gospel, the New Testament version. What can you expect? Oh, this is the best of all, isn't it? Here's what you expect. You can expect a warm reception from the very God who was angry with you. He will extend His hand to embrace you. For He is gracious. Gracious is a form of the word grace. Nothing can be gracious if there's not grace there. And we proclaim a God of grace. And we proclaim as the message of that God that only by grace can you be saved. And it's His grace, not our grace. You can't earn grace. He gives grace. But if you come to God, as Christ said, come unto me, this is what you'll find. He is gracious, merciful. Merciful means He forgives the guilty. He's not obligated. But out of compassion, He does. Slow to anger. Again, I say, he's angry with the wicked every day. That includes all sinners. So the anger that he has over the sinner, now love is extended to the sinner. The sinner has now confessed, I agree with you, God. I am the sinner you proclaim me to be. And it's overwhelming. It's unbearable. I'm helpless, hopeless, and justly condemned. God, what can I do? And he'll receive you. That's our message. It's the greatest message on the planet. It's the greatest message there ever has been. There won't ever be a better message than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anger replaced by love of great kindness. 
How do we talk about the great kindness of God? I'll just have to sum it up. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave His Son great kindness. And repenteth Him of the evil. God doesn't change. But God, get this right, changes how He addresses sinners. And it's not God changing at all. It's God staying God. God looks on sin as abomination and He will punish sin. And all sinners in that category, He's angry with every day. And the only way for God not to be angry with you is to get out of that category and get over here into this one. Where God loves those that are of a broken heart and a contrite spirit and that ask and seek Forgiveness. God doesn't change. He looks on sin with anger. But He looks with love and affection upon every sinner that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So God doesn't change. It's the sinner that must change. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger. And i got to throw this in quickly. Just turn to Luke 4 with me quickly. And we'll sum this up. Of course, all of that forgiveness, love, and affection, kindness, grace is manifested in the person of Christ. And I hope you put this piece of the puzzle in there and it's precious to you as it was to me. In Luke 4, verse 17 and 18 and 19, we have here the fulfillment of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. You can read that later. But he's given the book of the prophet in the synagogue. He opens the book to Isaiah 61. They didn't have chapters and verses back then, but he turned to that part. And in verse 18 he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And notice this, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable day of the Lord. Close the book, set down, verse 21 he says in the red letters, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Jesus came for those who have a broken heart, a rent heart, a burdened heart over sin. He claimed to be the great physician. And the great physician came for sinners. Sinners with broken, rent hearts. Not for religious Pharisees who rend the garment. Broken sinners. The Lord is merciful to those of a broken and contrite spirit. He resisteth the proud. He giveth grace to the humble. Let's conclude. The bottom line is, except the heart be rent before the garments, there is no real salvation. Because there's mourning, because there's sorrow, because there's weeping, may or may not mean you are saved. Those things accompany salvation, but they do not precede the rending of the heart. They are the effects. So the question before us today is that we must examine as Jesus and the apostles ex exhorted their hearers to look into your own heart. 
Don't worry about anybody else's. Just look at your own. It's the only one you can do anything about. The only one you'll be held accountable for. Has your heart been rent? Have you been overcome, overwhelmed? As the jailer, as the day of Pentecost, as the sinner in Luke 18 that went down to pray with the Pharisee. Overwhelmed and overcome to a helpless, hopeless state where the only thing left to do is just cry out to God. That's a rent heart. If you see yourself as one who's went to church, read the Bible, prayed, done a lot of other stuff, all that's rending the garments. That's got to come afterwards. It's of no effect or no contribution to the saving of the soul before rending of the heart. We do not want anyone who hears us today to be in that group of people who in judgment will be separated to the left hand and will have to be pleading, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Notice what's the focus? What we did. Have we not cast out devils? What we did. Have we not done many wonderful works? What we did. And to those who have rent their own garments, Christ will say the saddest words in probably all the Bible or the equivalent thereof. Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. But if your heart has been rent by the grace of God, then again, the right thing has occurred. Because that's where salvation is. It's internal. And you have a hope that can't be taken away in this life or in the life to come because you're safe in Christ. He and what He did is our security, not what we have done. And we rest on that. So today when we talk about pray for those that are lost, like on our prayer request, what you're praying for is the rending of the heart. That's what we pray for. May God be merciful to give someone hope today. All right, Cole, if you would, please.